Uh, if you've got your Bibles or if you've got your smartphones, you're tech-savvy enough to have a smartphone, take it out and turn to the North Point app. Open that up. Uh, there's some fill-in-the-blanks that will be really helpful for you to have. It'll give you the scripture uh, for today's message as well. Um, if you don't have the North Point app, you're not using that, uh, take out your Bibles or take one off the back of the pews in front of you. If you don't have one at home, we have some back at the kiosk and would love to send you home with one. But uh, go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 to start the message today. 2 Samuel 11 tells the story of David and Bathsheba. David was the king of Israel, and um, the way that that starts at the beginning of chapter 11, it says, in the time of spring, when kings should be going to war, David was at, in Jerusalem. He was not out at the battlefront. He was just hanging out at his palace, and he's walking on top of the roof, and he looks out over the city, and from the top of his roof, he notices this woman taking a bath. And when I say he notices this woman. Understand, he noticed this woman taking a bath. And he says to one of his servants, hey, find out who that is and bring her here. And they sleep together and she gets pregnant. And David, thinking that he had in an instant done something stupid, but everything was going to be okay, now starts this process of trying to cover up Bathsheba's pregnancy. Ultimately, he, um, he, he does all kinds of stuff. Uriah, Bathsheba's hub, husband, um, is, is one of the soldiers, and David um, has him ordered to the front of the line, the line withdrawn, and so he is killed in battle um, at David's, at David's um, hand. David orders that to happen. Um, David thinks that he's free and clear. He marries Bathsheba. Bathsheba's then uh, they're going to have this baby. And, and in the midst of this, God prompts this prophet in Israel, a guy named Nathan, to come and talk to David. And um, if, if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, you begin to, you hear the story that happens there of Nathan's conversation with David. Um, Nathan says, there were these two guys who lived in the city. One was rich and one was not rich. The guy who was rich had lots of flocks and herds. He had all kinds of stuff. And this poor guy only had one little lamb that he bought. And he loved that lamb so much he brought it into the house and the kids played with it and they fed it from the table. It was an incredibly cool thing. This guy loved this lamb. Well, the rich guy, had a, a, a traveler came to town, a visitor, and he wanted to fix him dinner. But he didn't want to use any of his flocks or herds, so he took the lamb from the poor guy and slaughtered it and served the guy lamb chops. And David goes crazy. It says in verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as God lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. Picture that. That interaction, David's self-righteous rage, they're just, the words hang in there. And Nathan looks him in the eye and says, David, you are a man. David realizes in that instant that what he thought he had hidden had not been hidden at all. In 1989, I went on my first mission trip, a, a trip to Honduras, it's a country that I have come to love immensely. I've been there now, I think, a total of eight times. 1989, I went there. We ministered in, the, in, in some 
tiny churches up in the mountains that overlook the city of San Pedro Sula. 1990, we, I took a, a group back there. We were again in those same churches. Incredible, incredible time. 92, we went back and, and one of the missionaries was in the process of moving to the coast of Honduras uh, to uh, within a couple of kilometers of the, of the Caribbean. And so we spent a week in the mountains and a week um, on the coast there with her helping establish that mission. Two kilometers from the Caribbean was... That was, that was tough duty, um, but we made it. We, you know, we made it through that. Um, the next year, we went back again, and, and this is what I remember specifically about that trip in 93. <clears throat> on one day, I went with the missionary into the city of Porto Cortez. It's a port city on the northern coast of Honduras, and uh, the missionary had to go into the bank and do a bunch of stuff, and I just sat in the, in the truck because my Spanish wasn't good enough to function in there, and I just sat and watched people. I'd been well acquainted with Honduran culture, with the people, and it was just interesting for me to watch people. And I remember sitting on the front seat of the truck and watching as women walked by to go to work. And in the eyes of the women, there was not any laughter, any hope, any joy, like you would see most uh, people in the U.S. go to work. There, it, it, there was this emptiness that was there that I was really, really struck with. And then I began to notice the men as they walked by the truck as well. And, and almost to a man, as a woman would walk by, the men would check out the women with a look that was clearly all about sex. Look at them from the top of the head to the bottom of their feet, front and back, over and over and over again. And I thought, I think I get why the women's eyes look the way they do. Because in this culture, they're seen as an object with very little value. And sitting on the front seat of the truck, I remember hearing the voice of Nathan say, you are that man. Because I could think about being in the U.S. and having that same kind of look. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that is difficult for us. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. That's the seventh of the Ten Commands. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. If I could sum up the entire message in one thought, it's this. It's actually not just today's message, it's the entire series. Buzz's message last week, the, the next weeks that we'll have, it's this. God wants your heart. God wants your heart. It's so easy for us to be concerned about our behavior, about what's on the outside, the externals. God wants our heart. Lust, porn, it's the stuff that calcifies your spiritual arteries. It's the stuff that causes the widow-maker heart attack and causes you to die. We need 
bypass surgery. We need to get on the operating table and allow God to come in and do work on us from the inside out because he wants our heart. I am grateful for a minister in Gaithersburg, Maryland, who um, in studying this passage came up with the five points that I want to share with you today. They so capture my heart as I studied it as well that I've just taken um, his main points and really kind of modified them some. The first point, and uh, uh, again, if you've got the app, you've got some fill in the blanks there. The, the first point from this passage is this. Jesus was talking to me. Jesus was talking to me in this passage. Say that with me, please. Jesus was talking to me. Jesus was talking to me. Uh, understand that, that um, adultery is not someone else's sin. That lust and sexual sin are equal, equal opportunity employers. It's not limited to men or women. It's not limited to young or old. Um, two, two, two things stick in my mind. One, I remember one of my roommates from college, after he got married in our junior year, uh, in a conversation said, you know what? Lust is worse for me after marriage than it was before. Um, and he was, he was a virgin when he was married because he knew what it was all about then. The other conversation that just sticks in my head uh, that I read about, old guy in his 70s just weeping because he still struggled with sexual sin in his 70s, thinking surely it, it shouldn't be this way. This, it's a real deal for all of us, no matter where we are. Um, a minister friend of mine, a number of years ago, was telling me about, he met with his accountability partner. And, um, and he said that his accountability partner had asked him how he was doing sexually and, and whether or not there was temptation from other women, that kind of stuff. And, he, and, and my ministry friend said, oh, no, you know what? I don't have any trouble with that. That's, gratefully, God's been good. That's not something that I've ever had to to deal with at all. And his accountability partner said, watch out, because if you've never had that issue before, Satan knows exactly what buttons to push to bring that issue to the front of your life. And all he's doing is waiting for the right time, waiting for the right circumstances where you will be vulnerable. What's interesting, sad, that same minister friend fell about five years later when, when, when perfect storm happened and he lost track of who he was and he fell into sexual sin. Understand that if you say today, this is not a problem I deal with. Scripture's clear. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, no one's righteous, not even one. No one is righteous. If we think that all this is about is sleeping with someone, we're sadly mistaken. Understand that we can be a virgin on our wedding night and still have a heart that's filled with lust. We can be a person who only watches PG movies and still have an X-rated fantasy life and imagination. We can be outwardly faithful to our spouse physically and yet have a wandering eye and a wandering heart. We all fall short. What, what is this lustful intent that Jesus talks about? It's this passionate, inordinate desire for something that we can't have, for something that we want more and more and more of. We talk about lust for power, lust for blood, lust for money, lust for sex, 
Lustful intent is about looking, looking with a sexual purpose. It's the, 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 the line that makes the most sense to me. It's lust is, I want some of that. It's that look. Do you understand? You don't have to nod your head because then, yeah, okay, got it. Lust is all about your imagination going someplace that it has no business going. And understand that lust is not limited to men. There is an incredibly multi-billion dollar industry of romance novels that are geared for women who create this image in their mind of the perfect person, the, the perfect man that would make life right. It's, it's, uh, it takes the woman to say, I want some of that. I want someone who looks like Channing Tatum, who dances like Michael Jackson, who listens like George Clooney, who has the sense of humor of Will Smith, who can protect me like a secret service agent, and who's as rich as Bill Gates, right? Now that's realistic, isn't it? Instead, you wake up and you realize that you're married to J Jason Alexander, right? <laughs> In this passage of Scripture, Jesus was talking to me. He's talking to all of us. Second point's this. What's good should be guarded. What Jesus was saying is, this is more than about lust and adultery being bad. What he was saying is, sexual intimacy is good as God designed it. I, I love the line from Josh McDowell where he says, God is not a cosmic killjoy. That's, his, his deal is to sit up there and say, I'm going to make it tough on them. That's not who God is at all. God is about preserving and protecting something that's precious for us. Understand that God wasn't surprised by what Adam and Eve did in the garden after he had created them. God had designed that. You know, um, when I do a wedding, almost always I use Genesis 2 where Adam, you know, God brings the woman to, to the man and Adam says, oh, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's taken from my side. She's going to leave her father and mother. We're going to become flesh. And, and when you read that in the context of a wedding, it's all very kind of objective and reflective. In reality, I, um, I, think, I think that this is what happened in the garden in Genesis 2. God has Adam go to sleep. Adam goes to sleep. Adam wakes up. And when he wakes up, there is this naked woman looking at him, who's perfect. And you know what Adam said? He didn't say, this is now bone of my bones and flesh. Adam said, yes! Yes, God! She's incredible! And all the pieces fit. This is incredible. Do you understand what happened in the garden? Um, for the, for the wedding, for, for the couple who gets married and they're virgins and, and, the, and they've done it right, they're on their wedding night, they're sexually pure. There's this moment that they see each other for the first time and say, man, oh man, oh man, oh man. And the other person says, woman, oh woman, oh woman, oh woman. There's this incredible moment because God made it good. Sex is not something to be hidden. It's not, it's not bad. God designed it, and we've got to guard what he has given to us. Marriage, 
The, the sexual intimacy in marriage is the picture of Christ and, and the church, that relationship, that is life-giving. It's procreative. God does something incredible in that. We need to guard the integrity, the wholeness of sex. I wish I had time to really spend a whole bunch of time. Tim Keller uh, painted a picture for me that was incredibly good. He said, um, you know, there are different kinds of relationships. There's a, there's a consumer relationship in life. And in a consumer relationship, you look at stuff and you want to get the best deal and you say, yeah, I want that at this price. And you shop around it and, and you go through that process. And then there's a covenant relationship, a relationship that happens with, with uh, people that it's not about the price, it's about the relationship. You have this relationship that drives everything. The thing that Keller said that was so astounding to me was he said, we, we often approach sex in our culture in a from a consumer relationship. It's all about what's best for me. I want to get the best deal I can. And what's implicit in that is that you're all the time saying, hmm, can I do better than this? Can I do better than this? One, one of the things that was really interesting that Keller quoted was a, a, a book that's been written that was on the New York Times bestseller list that said, um, people who live together, that one of the quotes that was in this book from, it was about people who live together, that a woman said, I feel like I'm always on trial. Been living with this guy for years. And that there's always this sense of, am I good enough to be his wife? That's a consumer relationship. A covenant relationship, on the other hand, is all about what you give, not what you get. Because the relationship is more important. The relationship is more important. And so the, what happens in sex is that that relationship gets expressed in an incredibly beautiful, self-sacrificing, giving kind of way. That's what God designed. That's what we, we've got to protect. Third point, who we are on the inside is who we are. So easy for us to say, ah, you know what? I'm not doing anything bad on the outside. People can't really see my mind and my heart. Who we are on the inside is who we are. Who we are when no one's wa- watching in the middle of the night, when, the f- when we're at home and the family's away, is who we are. Who we are when we're at the beach or at the swimming pool or at the gym, when people are parading around and showing off their stuff, is who we are. Who we are on a business trip or when we're staying alone in a hotel is who we are. Because what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. Stephen Covey said, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia and said, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that he'll reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Who we are on the inside is who we are. Fourth point's this. This is no game, Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for, the whole, for your whole body to go into hell. We want to say, Jesus, just chill. This is not that big a deal. We live in this culture. You know what? Sex outside of marriage is not that big a deal. Fantasy thoughts, that's not that big a deal. What I watch on TV or on movies, it's not that big a deal. And Jesus says, yes, it is. It's a huge deal. You're the one who's out of touch with reality, not me. You know, the, the, the game today, the Super Bowl, is a pretty spectacular deal. I'll be watching it. I love football. You guys know that. But you know what? When it hits midnight tonight or 1 o'clock tomorrow morning, all traces of the game are going to be gone. The confetti will be cleaned up. The interviews will be done. There'll be one team that's really happy, another that's, that's just incredibly dejected. But life will go on tomorrow. When we're talking about what's going on in our hearts and our heads, our purity, it's not a game. It's not a game. What's at stake is heaven and hell, Jesus says. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and said, the body isn't meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised Jesus from the dead. He will raise us also. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Jesus? Shall I take the members of Jesus and unite them with a prostitute, physically or in my mind? Never. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said the two will become one flesh. Whoever is united with Jesus is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Honor God with your bodies. What's at stake is huge for all of us. Last point's this, do whatever it takes. Jesus says, do whatever it takes. Yeah, Jesus said, you know what, if, if your hand causes, uh, is a problem, cut it off. If your eyes a problem, cut it off. And that, that begs this question. I, I remember as a kid thinking, good night, God. Do I need to cut my eye out, cut my hand off? Um, or anybody been there? Um, the question is, when Jesus said this, was he being literal or was he using hyperbole, exaggeration for effect? I'm quite confident he was using hyperbole um, to communicate the severity of the truth. And here's why I believe he used hyperbole. Because in all the pictures that we have of the disciples, they all have both eyes and both hands. All right? <laughs> think, think, yeah, that, that's a joke on multiple levels, if you kind of think through that for a second. Right? We don't hear about the church in the New Testament guys being maimed. Jesus was saying, understand the stakes and do whatever it takes. If there's anything that you're doing in your life that doesn't make sense in light of eternity, get rid of it. See with eternity in mind. The question for us, is there an urgency in our fight against sin? Is there an urgency for us in doing battle with our fantasy life, with the imagination, the stuff that's going on up there? 
Understand that the fight is personal. Jesus said your right hand. For most of us, we're right-handed. To lose our right hand is a big, big deal. To lose an eye, all of a sudden, stuff that you can see in depth and, and uh, with, with perception, you can't see in the same way. It's a big deal. Do whatever it takes. And that, that, that means coming clean. It means having an accountability partner. It means having somebody in your life that you can talk to and say, I struggle with this. Man, I messed up that you could talk to. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your husband. Certainly it's God, but you've got to tell someone. So what are, when, when you start to say, do whatever it takes, what's that, what's that mean? Um, it means get rid of the porn. Get rid of the porn. Maybe that means, um, maybe that means getting rid of your smartphone and going to a flip phone because it's really hard to look at porn on a flip phone, right? Um, maybe it means killing the cable at home and the Netflix to just remove that stuff from your life. Maybe it means having somebody in your life who has full access to all your electronic stuff. Passwords, they're able to track your keystrokes. They're able to look at your email. They're able to look at your past history. Give that to somebody. Maybe it means Triple X Church or Covenant Eyes, two programs that help create accountability. Maybe it's learning the discipline of looking everyone in the eyes and only the eyes. Maybe it's changing the music that you listen to the books or the magazines that you read. Maybe it's intentionally going to the aisle at Meyer or Kroger that doesn't have the tabloids and all the stuff that's there. Maybe it means calling Sports Illustrated now before the swimsuit issue comes out and, and asking them not to send it to you. Maybe it means that relationship at work. It's not really bad, but it's... In your heart, you know something's not right there. Maybe it means not just transferring to a different department, but getting out of that job completely to remove that temptation. Maybe it means not just going on the defensive, but going on the offensive. Maybe it means dating your wife or your husband again for the first time in a long time. Maybe it means having that conversation you haven't had for weeks or months or years about hopes and dreams, not just about schedules and responsibilities and kids and church. Maybe it means that in that marriage relationship that you woo each other. Uh, maybe, maybe it's taking the time to go home and to reestablish that level of intimacy that has been put aside for a really long time because it's a covenant relationship, one that's a giving one, that that, that, that relationship expresses union in the way that God designed. You know, um, when Deb and I went on the cruise, we had a conversation towards the end of the week that was, that was really kind of interesting. Um, we looked at each other and we said, do you realize that this is the first time, I think, since we had kids, 
that we've ever been away together, just the two of us, for seven days. When I reflect back, that's, I don't know that that's a good thing. Because that week was incredible for us. It was incredible to just be able to spend the time together, to reconnect, to experience what God has designed for us in, in an intimate relationship without all the distractions. Here's the deal. Jesus said, you know what? If you've even looked at a, at a woman with lustful intent, you've, it's like you've committed adultery. I want your heart. Do whatever it takes. I want your heart. God wants your heart. Buzz used the scripture last week. It's a a scripture uh, that, that I love. It's a translation from NIV 86 that's just, I think, great. Guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. Guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. Let's pray. God, I thank you that Jesus didn't just teach religious platitudes, but that he went right to where we live. He went for our jugulars, God. He went to our core so that we would understand how much you love us and how much you want us completely. That you don't just want religious behavior. You don't just want people to look good from the outside but you want us clean from the inside out God I thank you that Jesus came to die so that we could experience that so that our past could be wiped clean God I I pray right now knowing that there are lots and lots of people here with lots of junk and sludge and garbage hanging around inside their heads and hearts God, I ask that you would, in a fresh way this morning, forgive us. That you would put your spirit in us and break through that stuff so that we could hear you again with clarity. So that we could see our spouses with clarity. God, so that we could trust you for our future with clarity. God, so that you could come in and fill the void that we try and fill with fake stuff, stuff that's not real. God, I thank you for the beauty that you created in sexual intimacy, for the way that you designed it to draw us to each other, to give life, to to understand who you are. God, I ask that you would watch over us as a church, that you'd watch over us as individuals, and that we would be pure by the power of Jesus. Help us, God. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray.